I'm going to just talk a little bit this afternoon, not from any particular text. I, I have a few <clears throat> we can look at. Um, let's see, I guess if you wanted to look at, turn ahead to anyone, you could probably, maybe Luke 20 uh, might be a good place to start, but as I mentioned, I wanted to just sort of tentatively dip my toes in the waters of eschatology uh, this afternoon. Uh, in response to a couple of comments and questions that I had recently, so just thought I'd share um, some thoughts about it. Uh, somebody asked me recently about James White. Some of you have heard the name, maybe, or I would guess most of you have at some point. He is a uh, Calvinistic, Reformed, Baptist, um, who is also pretty much known for doing apologetics work, um, debates, a lot of debates with other um, religions and other philosophies, uh, and and is, just writes a lot, uh, writes a little and talks a lot, I guess maybe is a good way to say it, uh, does a lot of talking. He has a, a, a blog, or a, not a blog, what's the a radio thing? Podcast, yeah, that's what I was thinking, a podcast. So I, some of you listen to that. Super, super long, so I don't usually get to hear it all. But um, he likes to ramble on about all kinds of things. Anyway, uh, recently he created a very small internet sensation when he announced his conversion uh, from amillennialism to postmillennialism. And so I had two or three questions about that. Um, just mainly, have you seen it? What do you think about it? So I don't know that it's worth too much, but I'll, I'd like to tell you what I think about it or what I think the Bible says about it. Um, so I did get a chance to go and watch the video in which he uh, sort of announced this shift in his thinking. Uh, he did it at his church there in Phoenix, Apologia Church. And that was, um, it's online, you can go back and watch it. I forget what the, <clears throat> the actual title of the video is. But he went through basically four texts in the period, in the, uh, over the course of that sermon. Uh, the first was Psalm 2, and we're not going to look at any of these really, but Psalm 2, I mean, I know all, most all of you are familiar with it. Um, the Lord is speaking to His Son, and He tells His Son that He should ask Him, ask the Father, and the Father would give to Him the nations as His inheritance, and the end of the world as His possession. And White was making the point that God has promised to give to Christ all of the nations, not just a few people, but the nations of the world as to be under His authority. That He has given to the Messiah the rule over kings and rulers of the earth, as the wording of Psalm 2 says. So that the rule of Jesus Christ is... Um, it has political ramifications then, right? Over kings and rulers of the earth. Psalm 2. Second text he looked at was Psalm 110, in which the Lord, um, this is the one, the, I think we, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, probably Easter. Um, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Very, very familiar passage. One of the most quoted in the New Testament. Um, in that passage, the Lord tells His Messiah to rule in the midst of His enemies, which White was making the point that Christ's rule 
over all of his enemies um, is not one in which he just comes and wipes them all out so there's no enemies, and then he rules. But he rules now in the midst of even those who are in opposition to him. He rules over them. And he made reference to the passage that says, rule until your enemies are made a footstool for your feet as an implication that, or that it implies that uh, the Messiah's rule is ongoing and in fact progressive um, where Christ is progressively conquering his enemies. Then he went to Isaiah 42. <clears throat> I probably have to go a little faster here, but Isaiah 42, the first four verses, he, uh, he noticed there that the Messiah's ministry is characterized not by loud self-promotion, but by gentleness. He will not lift up his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And of course, Matthew quotes that passage in his text when we went through it. I think it's 12 maybe. I could be wrong. but And Matthew quotes it and he applies it to the situation where Jesus was um, confronting the Pharisees and the Pharisees were threatening to put him to death. And so he left those parts and went up to um, to Galilee. Um, the end of that passage, verse 4 in Isaiah 42 says that the Messiah will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. And he made the point that the only way you can envision the Messiah being tempted in any way to be discouraged would be if there were this ongoing opposition. If he just comes in the end, kind of sort of full-out style, blows away all his enemies, then there's no enemies that are fighting against him. But this is progressive, ongoing furthering of his kingdom in the face of opposition. Um, And then finally he went to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which of course just makes reference really back to Psalm 110. Uh, Paul writes in quoting that passage that God has put all his enemies under his feet and that a reminder that he must reign until uh, all his enemies are under his feet. And then Paul says, and then will come the end, or then comes the end. And then he says, and then death will be, I forget the exact wording, but done away with. Death will be defeated. The last enemy, which is death. Um, Which, of course, at least should tell us that there is one enemy still to be utterly annihilated when he comes. So one enemy, namely death, is not done away with until he appears. Um, All of this, uh, White was saying, and I I think in essence, really I agree, I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, that that Christians ought to have a, a great hope, that we ought not to be pessimistic, that we ought to be encouraged by the promises of Scripture. If God has promised this to His Son, do you not think He will deliver on it? Absolutely He will. And of course, right now, right now, I know you're watching the news, reading everything that's happening. It doesn't feel very encouraging. It feels really, really discouraging some days. And uh, I would say that there is an excellent section of the video. If I had time, maybe I'd put a clip here, but 
from about 56 minutes and a half to 59 minutes and a half. It's just really wonderful where he talks about how even the discouragement can we, that we see now, he envisions a way that that could end in hope and the growth of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Just a really beautiful, heartwarming, encouraging section. So, um, so anyway, the question was, what, what, um, what do I think? And or better yet, I mean, is there anything? What's the right scriptural way to think? And uh, of course, you know that this is a, an area that is hotly debated because it is number one found in lots of visionary literature, which is hard to interpret in some cases. Um, and secondly, that eschatology involves the entirety of the scripture and the harmonization basically of the whole Bible, which is, you know, that's a pretty big feat. So I say this with humility, and I definitely do not claim to have all the answers um, on the topic of eschatology. But I at least wanted to point you to a couple things to think about with relation to this. As you all keep thinking, I know, and I love this. This church is um, it's filled with people who love to think try to understand God's thoughts and think his thoughts after him. It's just a joy. Um, so anyway, I just want to give you a couple of pointers and then you can, of course, take it from there. Um, <clears throat> there is one place that uh, is, is the place where the thousand years, that is the millennium, uh, is specifically mentioned. Oh yeah, I should have had you turn there first, right? And that is uh, Revelation 20. So we could go ahead and look at that real quick just to refresh our memories. Revelation 20. <clears throat> All right, beginning in verse 1. And I'm, I'm de- this is definitely no detailed exposition of this passage, but just to put it in front of us. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then let's, let's just go ahead and for sake of time, jump down to seven. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That you know, sort of mysterious reference back to the Old Testament Ezekiel, I think. To gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that is the millennium. That is the passage right there. Um, there are a lot of other things that would influence our thinking about the millennium, but that's the place, the only place, where these thousand years are, are really explicitly mentioned like that. So what are the millennial positions? I think there are basically two. 
One you have heard of, premillennialism, and the other you have heard of, postmillennialism. Say, wait a minute, I thought there was a third one. All right. So I think there are basically two premillennialism and postmillennialism. But with regard to postmillennialism, there are two sort of flavors that you might say. Um, maybe that's a good way to say it. I don't know. Two varieties. There is postmillennialism proper, and there is what has come to be called amillennialism, which is not a great name because it just means it sounds like I don't believe in the thousand years. Well, the Bible says a thousand years. I believe in a thousand years. The question is, what is the thousand years, or when is the thousand years? So maybe it would be better called present millennialism or realized millennialism or something like that. The idea, well, I'll explain it. Traditionally, the distinction between postmillennialism and premillennialism, and I know most of you are already familiar with this, but just we're all on the same page, <clears throat> is that postmillennialism sees this passage, Revelation 20, as referring to a period of time, perhaps a literal thousand years, or perhaps the thousand is a figurative number referring to a great period of time. But anyway, postmillennialism sees a period of time that begins sometime after the first advent of Jesus, but sometime before the second advent of Jesus, his return. That is, his return is post-millennium. The millennium then, in terms of where we are now, may still be yet future. That is, we're still waiting for the millennium to start, or it's possible that we could even be in the millennium already, and that it is ongoing as we speak but it begins sometime after the first coming before the second. That's postmillennialism. Amillennialism <clears throat> then sees Revelation 20, that thousand years, as a period of time, not, not a literal 1,000 years, but in the context of figurative imagery, this is, um, this is pointing to a, a great period of time. And essentially, it marks the period of time that began at the first advent of Jesus, and continues until the second advent or the return of Jesus Christ. So the whole period that we're in right now, from the Jesus' first coming to his second coming, is all referred to when the Bible talks about the thousand years here in Revelation 20. That is considered amillennialism, or millennialism now. Right? Okay. That position, <clears throat> that position sees this binding of Satan here in Revelation 20 came with the, the, the keys and the chain. The binding of Satan here as the same thing that Jesus made reference to when he talked about the binding of the strong man and the spoiling of his household, which he then implied was a reference to himself. Remember, he came and he cast out the demons he came into the strong man's house, bound the strong man, and brought those formerly demon-possessed people out of his house into his own, led those captives free. Uh, <clears throat> this is also made reference to in Ephesians chapter 4, which is a 
quotation of, or a, a, an allusion at least, back to Psalm 68. Uh, we looked at this, I think, on Easter, if I remember right, where it says that he who um, ascended into heaven is the same one who descended to the earth. And of course, it's making reference back to the whole Moses leading the people of out of Egypt and ascending up to Mount Sinai and and um, and God's kings leading the people to a, their ascent. Even you have the Psalms of ascent to go up to Mount Zion and worship God. <clears throat> God, uh, but it says that um, when He uh, brought them out and led them, He gave gifts to men. And of course, made reference to the fact that the original Psalm said that He received gifts from men. And of course, that both of them are exactly what happened when God led the people out of Egypt. He received, they received gifts from the Egyptians. God gave those gifts to his people. He plundered the strong man to enrich his own people. And of course, that's what Christ did upon his resurrection is to enrich his church. We already went all over all that. That is also a reference to this. And so is John chapter 12. And there are other passages too, but in John 12, Jesus really, I think, um, in my view, makes it pretty clear too, um, when he announces that his hour has come, right? What's his hour? His hour is the time for him to be crucified, res- you know, resurrected, glorified. It's all sort of a piece there. My hour has come. And then he says this, now is the judgment on this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. All of that, I think, goes together with Revelation chapter 20 to indicate that this period of time begins at the first coming of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, resurrection, and particularly His enthronement in heaven and all of the signs that He gave to indicate that that is what happened. And of course, you know, one of the real puzzles then for a lot of people is you know, when we look around, it doesn't seem like Satan is very is very bound. It seems like he's pretty active in this world. This seems like a pretty bad place. And we read a number of passages that talk about the activity of Satan. He walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, right? Um, he doesn't seem bound. He doesn't seem cast out. And I think that's because of the fact that this is imagery that's being used to communicate something in particular. And sometimes you use different imagery to communicate different aspects of a truth that are all true at the same time. They're just different aspects of the same thing. So, for example, Jesus is said to be our great high priest, right, before God. He offers the sacrifice to God. And then at the same time, in other passages, we read that He is the sacrifice. He's the one being offered. He's on the altar. They're not contradictory. They're just um, visual pictures of different aspects of the same truth. Or in one passage, he's the lamb who has been slain. He's bleeding, and yet he lives. He's he's bled, and yet he lives. And on the other hand, uh, you know, sometimes even the writer of uh, uh, John will say, I think in, in one of the passages, that he heard about this lamb, and he looked up, and what did he see? He saw a lion. And so you have these mixed images in order to communicate different aspects of the same truth. And I think that's probably what's happening here. 
when it says that Satan was chained and bound, it doesn't mean he doesn't have any influence in the world anymore. We know that that's not true. What it means is that he was bound with regard to a particular purpose. And that purpose is, is uh, explicitly stated twice in this text. Uh, I didn't write down the verse, but where is it? Verse 3, 2, verse 2. He is bound, quote, so that he... I don't know, somehow I got she in my thing. You know, sometimes you have those little uh, letters, that those little uh, references, and then... So, he was bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He was bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And I think that's, that is exactly what happened at the first coming of Jesus Christ. For centuries, all of the nations had sat in darkness. But now, right, who had the gospel? God's people had the gospel, right? They say, we are blessed. We are the only ones that have the words of God. Psalm, whatever that is, 147. It's, it's a special thing to be those people. And, of course, they're to be testimonies. And so there were some here and there that became part of the people of God, but not on any kind of wholesale scale, not on any kind of worldwide scale. Those nations, friends, I think of how many generations of people came and went in utter spiritual darkness. But with the coming of Christ, what happens? The gospel just breaks open. Satan is bound in terms of the ability to deceive the nations any longer. The nations are given to Christ as his possession. He is made to be not just the king of the Jews, but a global king over the entire cosmos. That is what happened. That's the significance, the world-tilting significance of what happened at the first advent of Jesus Christ. Satan is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Now Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and says, go into all of the nations. I have been given authority over all of them. Now make disciples of all. Greeks, Jews, Romans, Egyptians, you name it. Just keep going and going to the uttermost part of the earth. And of course, the history of the millennium, if that view is correct, the history of the millennium is the history of exactly that. The nations being brought from darkness into light. And Satan, uh, Satan's hold over those nations that were that was millennia long being broken, and those people are being brought out of his kingdom and into the kingdom of God's dear son. All right. So, um, so anyway, so so just to put my cards out, I, I so I would agree with that traditional, what is traditionally called the amillennialist view of Romans uh, of Revelation chapter twenty that this period refers to the. Uh, to the first to the second advent. However, however, old distinctions have been breaking down. Older distinctions between, in this case, post premillennialism uh, and postmillennialism. Many who identify today as postmillennial also interpret Revelation 20 as the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In other words, the distinctions between these two views are being blurred specifically because postmillennialists are explaining Revelation 20 in ways that are traditionally seen as an amillennialist explanation. 
All that to say this then, that the line between amillennial and postmillennial is not a hard and fast line. It's not like it's easy always to identify which camp somebody's in. Or maybe they don't even, uh, I don't know, want to embrace one of the particular terms. And in fact, as I listen to James White's um, sermon on these passages, I would say, by and large, I agreed with it all the way, all the way through. Um, by and large, I mean, I, there might be a few things that I would say differently, but I thought it was good. Um, he's emphasizing two real things in those texts. Number one is the progressive, ongoing nature of Christ's rule. Is Christ ruling now? Yes. Is it? Is his kingdom growing? Yes. I think those are undeniable biblical truths. And secondly, he's emphasizing the fact that his rule has real effects here on earth. It's not just that he's ruling up there in heaven somewhere and it doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on down here in the everyday, workaday, world, kingdoms, and nations. And I think that is also a biblical truth. Christ's rule and reign most definitely has effects here on the earth. On those two main points that he seemed to be trying to make, I think many people would uh, agree, myself included. So rather than there being kind of a hard line between postmillennialists and amillennialists, and by the way, I know I'm not dealing with premillennial just because that wasn't part of the question, so maybe someday we'll <laughs> talk about that, but um, the, the line between those two is not so much of a line, it's more of a kind of a continuum. You know what I mean? Like if you have black over here and white over here, I won't say which is which, but then you have sort of gray in the middle. And, and, you know, people are just somewhere in the gray, usually. And the continuum basically comes down to this, as I understand it, in my limited, you know, judgment of it. And it, it has to do with how people understand the nature of the millennium. That is what the millennium will look like. And particularly, how successful Christianity will be in bringing the nations under the law of God, at least as White's articulating it. I think that's, that's kind of the, the continuum where you would have differences. So on the one end, you'd have uh, people who <clears throat> believe that in the millennium, if that's now, then that's now. Or uh, if it is to come, I mean, if we're already in it, we're in it. Or if it's still to come, beginning someday, then it will this is the way it'll be characterized. There are people who believe that it will be a um, a kind of golden age of happiness and peace and prosperity on the earth, because the earth has become, for lack of a better term, Christianized. I don't know of anybody who believes that every person on earth is going to become a true child of God. But the idea is that the world will be Christianized. That Christianity will be the predominant influence on this earth before Christ returns. That God's law will be honored among all of the nations. His justice will be the justice of the land. That the, there will be general external conformity to the will of God. And that many on the face of the earth, will in fact be true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's a fair characterization of that position. 
Um, then there are others, kind of if you want to go to the far other end of the spectrum on what the millennium will look like, there are others who are much more pessimistic. Um, would make much of passages like 2 Timothy 3. Evil men will wax worse and worse in the last days. And the idea being that the world is just going to get worse and more hostile to Christ as the ages, as the age goes along until he returns and then his glory is manifest and they all see who they were really fighting against and their eyes are open. And then, of course, as I mentioned, those, if those are kind of the extremes of the view of what the millennium looks like, then there is every shade in between. And so where am I? I'm like somewhere in there. Um, I mentioned last week some of the parables that Jesus told that give us a framework for understanding the nature of Christ's kingdom. Uh, The parable of the mustard seed, right? Jesus, the little mustard seed, the gospel starts out small. He said the kingdom of God is like that. God's kingdom is like that. And what happens to the little seed? You put it in the ground and it grows and it becomes a tree that the birds of the air can nest in. Or the leaven, he talks about the leaven, a little bit of leaven that you put in the lump and the whole thing is uh, is influenced. Or the rock cut out without hands that comes and crushes uh, the kingdoms of the earth and then it grows of its own into a mountain that fills up the entire earth. And of course, White's comments were all along the line of the growth of the kingdom of God. And friends, I think that that's right. I think we ought to be optimistic about the gospel, about the power of the gospel, and about the growth of Christ's kingdom. God will give the kingdom to His Son. He will rule in the midst of His enemies. But I also want to say three reasons why I doubt that this means quite the golden age that some people might think if that golden age is said to happen before the return of Christ. I'll just give it to you briefly. You don't have time to really develop these, but it's just something to, for us all to keep thinking about. Number one, um, number one is the short reprieve that's talked about here in Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> right in verse 3, if you'll notice, it says that after the thousand years are over, Satan will be loosed for, quote, a little while. A little while. And what is the result of that little period of the unleashing of Satan, verses 7 to 10? The result is that, quote, a great number, in fact, like the sand of the sea, do what? They set themselves against God's people. And here's... Here's the question that I, I would have. If the gospel is as successful in the millennium as some people make it sound like it will be, I, I, I struggle with understanding how so many could be gathered against the church in such a short time. And so there's one thing that I, I think at least... Um, and there may, I'm sure there's, you know, people have their explanations for that. But I've never found one that's helped me kind of get over the hump there to say, um, or, or at least I should say that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a counterbalance to where I am on this, on this spectrum. The second reason is the two-age scheme of the Bible. Um, and what I mean by that, that's why I said um, <clears throat> Luke 20. <clears throat> 
I think this is the basic eschatology of the Bible, is that there are two ages. There is this age, and there is the age to come. You want to say, you know, we have all of these schemes of eschatology, right? Pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, and we have all these. Well, the Bible, what is the Bible scheme? The Bible scheme is this age and the age to come. That's pretty simple. And of course, it doesn't answer all our questions, but I think that's basic. And, and I think there's at least some help there. Uh, and here's the, here's the passage in Luke 20. You know the passage where they came to Jesus, they were trying to trick him. They said, this woman was married to this man, he died, so he married his brother, da da da. Whose wife will she be in the, in the age to come? And Jesus says, quote, the sons of this age marry. They marry. They get married. They're given in marriage. Those who are considered worthy to attain to the, that, to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Which almost makes it sound like people who are really Christians don't get married. Which is not what he means. I think you compare it to Matthew. Matthew has the same record and he makes it, he makes it clear that it's in the age to come where there's no need for marriage, right? But this is the way Jesus says it. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, so here's this age and here's that age, and there's no marriage, there's resurrection, verse 36, so that they cannot die anymore in that age because they are equal to the angels and to the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So here's the two big... Um, categories in just a strict biblical eschatology. There's this age and there's that age. Or in other places it's called the age to come. This age and the age to come. In this age there's marriage. In the age to come there's no more marriage. In this age there's natural bodies that die. In that age there are sons of the resurrection equal to angels who cannot die anymore. And thus no need to propagate the species through marriage. Now, the age to come. Now, here, here's here's uh, an interesting wrinkle in that in that scheme. The age to come intrudes into this present age in the last days of that age, which I take to be a reference to the entire period between the first coming and the second coming. I've said it many times. People say, are we in the last days? And my answer is, yes, we're in the last days. Because Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. There's the age of the prophets, now there's the age of His Son. This is the age of His Son between the first and second advents. The age to come is intruded into this age such that right now we're sort of in an overlap between the present age and the age to come. Still living in this present age, and yet citizens already of the age to come by virtue of the crucifixion and especially the enthronement of Jesus Christ. This is the scheme. This age and the age to come. The age when no, there's no marriage and there's no death. But here's how this age is characterized in the Scripture. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, this present evil age. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is, quote, the God of this age. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to, quote, this age. Now, we belong to the age to come, and no doubt the glory of that age to come will shine forth in this age to a greater and greater degree 
But the nature of this age doesn't fundamentally change. It is always a present evil age. I think that, in my, as I understand it, anyway, that's how I think there's a, I'm not at that end of the spectrum that says this is, it's going to become this almost another age before the age to come. And then the third thing that uh, puts me sort of in this middle place is um, a, 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 what I think is a paradigmatic parable. That's a nice uh, alliterated way to say it. Um, I think we ought to agree with this image that the kingdom of God grows in the world. The gospel will go forth. It will be the power of God. God will bring his uh, people into his kingdom. Um, the influence of that will be unmistakable. I mean, if somebody's truly saved, they're not going to be the same kind of dad they were before they got saved, right? They're not going to be the same kind of voter. They're not going to be the same kind of worker. They're not going to be the same kind of boss. You're gonna, society will change as more and more people are brought into the kingdom of Christ. There is going to be um, a, uh, a growth of the kingdom and, of course, the parables that illustrate that, the mustard seed, the leaven, and so forth. But there's another parable that adds to that picture, and that is the parable in Matthew chapter 13 of the wheat and the weeds. Remember that one? Um, and in that one, Jesus specifically comes back and explains it all, which is super helpful. <laughs> because the parables are like, if you have eyes to see, we should be able to see, but some of our vision... All of our vision is somewhat dim. So thankfully, he does come back and he gives us this explanation and we go, got it. That's super helpful. And this one, he says, okay, remember the, the guy went out, he sowed good seed in his field, he was waiting for the harvest, and then the crops started to come up and there's weeds in the midst of the wheat. In the wheat. And the, the servants say, hey, should we go out and try to yank out all the weeds? And he says, no, wait until the end so you don't pluck up the, the weed along with the weeds and let them uh, both grow together. So here's Jesus' explanation of the parable. The field is the world. So one thing I take from that is that Jesus is not talking about the mixed nature of the church. The church is full of believers and non-believers. Right? There may be other passages that you know would deal with that. But in this case, I think he's talking about the world in a broader sense. And then he says the wheat is the... Sons of the kingdom. Those are part of the kingdom of God. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the harvest, he says, is the end of the age. In fact, he goes on to help us in case we're wondering about maybe this age ended before the end of time, because, you know, there, that's a debate, actually. The end of the age which he identifies as the harvest time, is also the time when the weeds are cast into the fire, where there is, quote, weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, I think it's pretty, pretty clear that that's a pointer to the final judgment, not sometime previous to that. So he's talking about something that happens at the end of the age. What, is he, what happens then? That's when, that's when the weed and weeds are separated, and the one is burned, and the other is brought into the storehouse. But here's the big point. The master tells the servants when they ask about going and pulling out the weeds, he says, no, let both grow up together until 
the harvest. So both, I, I think this parable, at least to me, this just really helps to explain both on the one hand, the growth of the kingdom in all those passages that teach that, and at the same time, how there can be such widespread opposition to Christ and to the church at the very end. Both grow together. There is, in other words, in this parable, both optimism and realism. There will be a real golden age when Christ returns. But I think we are biblically warranted to expect something less than that. In fact, uh, I guess everybody would say it would be something less, but considerably less than that before he returns. Now, if I'm wrong, this is the good news, if I'm wrong, then I get to be super happy because the whole world becomes Christianized and everywhere you go, God's law is kept. Man, I'll just say, whew, praise God I was wrong. This is wonderful. So I'll be happy to be wrong. I, I sort of suspect that the history of the earth and the influence of Christ in the earth is somewhat analogous. Analogies aren't always perfect, but somewhat analogous to um, the influence of Christ in my own life personally in terms of my sanctification and in, in terms of yours and his and hers. How does sanctification work in the lives of people? Well, there are some that produce fruit 30-fold, some 60 some a hundred. There's none that belong to Christ who don't produce any fruit. They're burned. But there are different levels of fruitfulness among the people of God. There are also different levels of fruitfulness at different times in my own life. Like today I might be 60-fold and tomorrow 30-fold. And the next day after that maybe 100-fold. And, you know, my inconsistency makes me sad. But well, here's the point. I don't think, I don't think, anyone will ever reach or attain what sometimes is called sinless perfection, which is, is not, if I understand people who argue for that rightly, is not, does not mean that those people are not um, sinful, uh, that there, there's no in, innate sin or inherent sin at all. It just means they believe that people are going to, it's possible for a Christian to get to the point where you don't consciously sin anymore. Okay, I doubt that's true from the scripture. And in like manner, I doubt that the world will be quite as Christianized before Christ's return as I, in the same way I doubt that about my own sanctification. Here's what the Bible says about my own sanctification. When we see him, then we will be like him for we will see him as he is. Something There is something that God ordained that is wise about sanctification being brought to its fullness by seeing Jesus, by being in the presence of Christ. I think that's the same way it's going to be for the world too. It will be the return of Christ, the revelation of Christ, the manifestation of His glory that will in the end bring the world to a level that is far beyond even what it was before He returns. Um, and I would say with regard to personal sanctification, boy, it would be nice to be wrong about that one too. To come to the place where I would be 
never consciously sinning anymore. Um, but I think the Bible um, gives indications that are more realistic. <clears throat> anyway, all of that, let me close this way. Uh, a couple of implications, and this is why, this is kind of really the importance of it. Because um, at one level, you were like, why does it really matter? What, what difference is there? And, and we ought to say this, well, if God revealed it, it's all important. And we might not think it's as important as other things, but we should never stop pursuing whatever God said. But here are some implications, I think, uh, just from all this. Number one, uh, just two. Number one, that we must never mistake external conformity to God's law as the ultimate success of the gospel or the kingdom of God. I think we should not mistake external conformity to the law of God as the ultimate success of the kingdom or the gospel. And I, I think everybody would say that, right? But it's just I think it's highlighted in this with, the, with these considerations. At the end of the age, what happens? Even, even in the scheme um, that, that there is this golden age, at the end of the age, the Bible tells us what happens. People rebel. People rebel. In other words, you can see, um, I, I want to see God's law enacted as the law of the land. I want to see God's moral law guiding everything that we say is right. I, I don't see how else you can say, how else do you decide what's right and wrong anyway? Take a vote of unregenerate people. God's law is is the law, and I hope it becomes. Uh, I hope the law of the land becomes um, uh, in conformity to that. But I would never want to confuse that with the ultimate goal of seeing the law of God written on people's hearts, because you can make them conform outwardly, and still at the end of a millennium they raise their fists against God Almighty and against His Son. The second implication is this that. I think the Bible teaches that we will never outgrow our need for a theology of suffering. We will never outgrow our need for a theology of suffering. And of course, right now, that's a given. We're all like, yeah, suffering seems kind of imminent almost. But where and when things become more positive, we can't lose sight of this. We need, to say it another way, we need a theology that is, on the one hand, both optimistic about the gospel, about the power of God, about the growth of God's kingdom, the kind of optimism that encourages engagement with the world, engagement with the world, on, on the terms of, of the gospel and all of the implications of the gospel, rather than something that leads to isolation from the world and pulling back, the kind of hunker down and wait till God gets us out of here mentality. We should be optimistic about the gospel, about the power of God, about God's giving people to His Son and operate under that optimism. But on, this, on the other hand, we need a theology that is not only optimistic, but is also realistic about the world, about suffering, about persecution, the kind of realism that will keep us ready and willing to stand 
when the inevitable troubles come. As Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. thought it was going to get better and better. Why is it all getting worse and worse? Where does this trial come from? You need a theology that is both optimistic about the power of the, of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom and yet realistic about the world and suffering and persecution, the kind of optimism that encourages us to engage, the kind of realism that makes us willing to suffer and stand. No matter what we call our eschatology by title, I hope that it has room for both of those things.